Well, before we take our time in the Word of God, I'll ask you to bow with me once again for a word of prayer as we ask the Lord to attend to this time. Heavenly Father, we are grateful once again to be able to open Your Word. Lord, our weeks can be wearying here in this temporal place. We grow physically tired, mentally exhausted, struggling as it will to even muster up energy at times to spend it with you and yet you're by your grace and mercy you show us kindness continually are patient with us and here we are this day together as your family to hear from you whatever words are spoken this morning and whatever resonates in our hearts that is true of you and from your word may that impact our lives that you would be honored in and all in Christ's name amen All right, please take your Bibles and turn in them to the Gospel of Luke. I said to you last Lord's Day that I will be saying that a lot as we will be studying through the Gospel of Luke and then following that up with the sequel of the book of Acts, which Luke also was given the privilege by God to give to us. And this morning we are continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke, and this Lord's Day we are just at the beginning as Luke, the faithful historian, writes out to us, as he has said to his friend Theophilus, in consecutive order what has happened in the history of redemption concerning the Savior Jesus Christ so that we might know the exact truth about all that we have been taught. That is the goal of Luke. That is his theme, to give us an understanding concerning Jesus Christ that is unwavering, one that is unshakable. And I want to begin our time this morning by simply reading a rather lengthy section of what we know here is as chapter 1, even though chapter numbers and verse numbers are not infallible. They are not given by God. It was simply written out as a continuous flow. And in years past, they put those in so that we might understand and divide up things a little easier. So we're here in chapter one, and I want to read this section so that our minds are set in the surrounding context for our time this morning, as well as even potentially the next few weeks. I want you to follow along as I begin reading from verse 5 and read all the way down through to verse 38. Chapter 1 has 80 verses, and so that's not even half of what we need. Luke says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abiah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. They had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now it came about while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. 
And the whole multitude of people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw him, and fear gripped him. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And it will be he who will go as a forerunner for him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know for this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Behold, You shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which shall be fulfilled in their proper time. The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. When he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained moot. And it came about when the days of his priestly service were ended that he went back home. And after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Now, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph and of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. Behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. 
Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I want us to just take a moment in our own minds, if we can, and imagine. Imagine for a moment that you are a Jewish person who is living in first century Palestine. Imagine that you have been raised in a Jewish home under the teaching and tutelage of the synagogue. You have heard about the prophets of the past. You know about Moses and about David and about Samuel and Isaiah. The great men of the past who have actually had encounters with the living God. You've heard about how God brought your people out of the land of Egypt and placed them by His sovereign hand in the promised land. You also know of your people's disobedience to God and how God had taken them into exile under other nations. You know that your people had been under the rule of Babylon for decades just as they were under the rule of Egypt centuries before that. But now, now you're back in the land. Now you're in the land what God had promised. And the temple has been restored. The rituals of Old Testament worship have been reinstituted by the priests. In fact, you are one of the priests. And yet, for your entire life, And for that matter, for 400 plus years of recent history, ever since the time of the prophet Malachi and his prophecy to Israel about their disobedience to God and that God was bringing judgment upon the nation because of their inauthentic worship, For all of those years since that prophecy, there has been no proven testimony of anyone having any current encounter with God. In fact, over your lifetime, there have been no miraculous events that have taken place. You've only heard about them. For 400 years, God has been silent. It has been supernaturally, deafeningly quiet. No revelation Nothing by way of God fulfilling the promises made to your ancestors. None of that has been seen or heard of for 400 plus years. And then, seemingly from out of nowhere, God speaks. The deafening silence is broken, and you are the one who hears from God. That is the first event that Luke's gospel records. It is the sudden appearance of an angel to a Jewish priest named Zacharias. It has, it's as if there has been a God-imposed spiritual eclipse that has blocked out God's voice for 400 plus years, and now, and now the sun is beginning to break through 
Now God begins to speak. It's been a long and dark time, but now there's a glimpse of light. A glimpse of light is that, that is beginning to shine and bring assurance that life is to come. In fact, some 400 years prior through the prophet Malachi, God had promised that it would come. Malachi's prophecy in chapter 4 and verse 2, he says, But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip like calves from the stall. In other words, the day of release was coming. The day of release was promised, and it would be a glorious day. It would be an unforgettable day, and it would be a day of healing. Not a day of physical healing, but healing for the spiritually parched soul. And you, being a devout Jewish priest, were longing for that day. You were longing for that day. The Old Testament had promised that one would come, that there would be one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And just before the words of Malachi were, went silent, and the quietness of 400 plus years fell upon a disobedient Israel and world, God had promised through Malachi that He would send one like Elijah in fact, Malachi even states that he would send Elijah, and yet we know from this passage that it was one like Elijah. And he would come before the great and terrible day of the Lord, it says in Malachi 4, verse 5. You, as a devout priest, you know what Malachi said. You have heard it read in the synagogue. You've heard your other fellow priests talk about it. You want to see it, but you are only getting older. Time is marching on. Age is creeping upon your body. The years are passing, and soon you too will be gathered to your fathers. And you wonder, will God keep silent forever? And so here's Luke, carried along by the superintending inspiration of the Holy Spirit, many centuries after Malachi is long off the scene, and Luke is telling us of the beauty and grandeur of the sunrise of God's voice breaking the silence on human history. Telling us of the plans that had been made in eternity past coming to life in time. And so here we have the connection, beloved. We have the connection from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The bridge that some of us wonder, is it even there? This is the bridge. And Luke says to us that it all began in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Notice that in verse 5. That, beloved, is a historical marker given to us by faithful Luke for us to know that we are not so that we are not confused in any way about the timing of this event. Luke is being faithful to his intent so that we are certain about what we have been taught. This beloved is fact. 
This is fact that can be checked. This is fact that has a historical marker attached to it. It's, it's verifiable information. This was during the time of Herod the Great, for that is what he called himself. And the circumstances focus around the activity taking place in the temple that he had built. Herod's temple, by the way, was a pretty miraculous and magnificent edifice. The historian Josephus, who lived very closely to that period of time, describes it in succinct words in this ways. He says that it lacked nothing that could astound the mind and the eye. It was covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, and the sun would no sooner than come up that it would shine so brightly that people could hardly look at it. Almost as if you were looking at the sun. He goes on to say that the approaching visitors from a distance, to them it appeared like a snow-covered mountain because whatever was not covered in gold was of the purest of white. Would have been quite a place to see. And it is here that we learn of the first divine encounter that breaks the silence which had lasted more than 400 years. And so for our time this morning, I I just want to simply make some observations for us as we walk through this, and then maybe draw out some spiritual implications for our lives. You notice that verses 5 through 7 introduce us to two people. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abiah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron whose name was Elizabeth. Zacharias was one of thousands of priests living in Palestine during the days of Herod the Great. The priests were divided into what they called 24 different divisions of priests so that each division had several hundred priests in it. And Zacharias was in the division of priests named after Abiah, that was his division. You notice that in verse 5. You say, well, how did all that come about? Well, King David was the first to arrange the priests under divisions. And he did that because all the priests were sons of Aaron. In other words, they, they all came through the progeny of Aaron's loins, and Aaron had two, particularly two primary sons, Eleazar and Ithamar. And from there, their families came other priests down through their progeny, and then their grandkids who were males were priests, and on and on it went down the line. So every priest came from the line of Aaron, and every male child who came from the family line of Aaron was considered a part of the priesthood. In First Chronicles 24... David, before the kingdom was split into the northern and southern kingdoms, David, during his reign, divided the priesthood into, as I said, 24 divisions. Why? Because Eleazar and Ithamar combined had a total of 24 sons. So David made those sons the heads of an order of priests and their sons and all their sons to follow, and they all fell into those sons' orders, so that all of the following sons 
of priests would be in whatever order they were born under. Well, the eighth order was named for the eighth son of Eleazar. That was Abiah. Well, Zacharias is in that division. Well, those divisions all fell by the wayside under the Babylonian captivity. When Babylon came and took Israel exile over into Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. And upon return to Jerusalem, only four orders of priests returned. And the priests that returned, therefore, then were reconstituted into 24 groups. And then those groups were then, therefore, identified again by the original names that they had under David. And so Zacharias's division was the division identified under the original name Abiah. That doesn't mean he was of the descendants of, of Ithamar, but he was put under that division. Now each division of priests served in the temple for uh, two one-week periods every year. Sounds like our National Guard, right? Every summer you go and you serve for two weeks out of the year. Well, the priests were somewhat like that. They served for two one-week periods every year. And of the hundreds of priests in each division, 56 of them were chosen by lot to participate each day of the week. Luke tells us that Zacharias' division is serving in the temple, right? He's performing his priestly service, verse 8, before God in the appointed order of his division. This is what is going on. Now, Zacharias is married. He's married to his wife, and her name is Elizabeth. And Elizabeth also was from the Aaronic line, or the priestly line. She is from the daughters of Aaron. Aaron didn't just have sons, he had daughters, and those daughters had children, and those female daughters were the daughters that came from the daughters of Aaron. And for Zacharias, she was an extra special companion. Why? Because it was one thing to be a priest and to be married. That was good. But it was extra special if your wife was also from the line of Aaron. She also came from the priestly line. In fact, she even carried the name of Aaron's wife, who also was named Elizabeth. So her parents thought so highly of that heritage that they named her after Aaron's wife. So Elizabeth is quite a catch. And being of the priestly line, part of that extra special reality to her was that she understood the nature and duty of a priestly office. She had brothers, she had uncles, her fathers, her grandfathers, they had all been priests. She lived in and around priests all the time. And so the first observation that I want us to see this morning is the testimony concerning these two people and their spiritual character. The testimony concerning their spiritual character. You notice how Luke puts it here in verse 6. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Some of your translations might use the word upright. Upright instead of righteous. They were both upright in the sight of God. That's not the best translation 
I believe some translators do that. Why? Because they truly don't want us to get the idea that someone can earn salvation by works. To call someone righteous is different than saying they're upright. Right? These, these are righteous. It's true. We can't earn salvation by works. Salvation is by faith alone. But it's also true, as it is recorded faithfully here by Luke, that Zacharias and Elizabeth lived according to the Old Testament forms of godliness. They walked blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. You say, what do you mean? What do you mean? Well, I mean just what Luke is saying. They were meticulous at keeping all of the requirements of God. Anything that God had commanded, anything that God had said, they were meticulous in their life to strive at doing those very things. In other words, what God required in the Old Testament was obedience. That's what God required. Obedience to His laws, obedience to His rules, and for the most part, the Jewish nation turned that into a form of legalism, which became the standard by which many taught and believed that someone would be made righteous. If and when they walked in those ways, then God would consider them righteous if they did those things. But we know that no man is righteous before God by his efforts. It's only by faith in Jesus Christ. And so what is Luke doing here? God never intended that someone would be made righteous by their efforts. In fact, godliness in the Old Testament was the same as godliness is in the New Testament. There's no difference. It's an obedience. Godliness is an obedience, an outworking, right, from the heart. It's an obedience that is born from faith, which produces the desire for obedience. In other words, true obedience in the the Old Testament was obedience from desire rather than duty. Why? Because of a belief in what God said. Remember what the Bible said about Abraham, Genesis? Genesis 15 and verse 6. Then he believed the Lord, and he, that is God, reckoned it to him as righteousness. Or you come into the New Testament, Romans Chapter 4 and verse 3, for what does the Scripture say, Paul says? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul says again, Galatians 3 and verse 6, just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. James says the very same things, and the Scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. This is what we see happening here. This is what we see in the life of Zacharias and Elizabeth, a righteousness that is born out of faith. It says that they were both righteous in the sight of God. Now let's be clear, no one is righteous in the sight of God unless God declares them righteous. 
As God saw them, he saw them as righteous. And the only way to become righteous in the sight of God was for God to declare them righteous. And that righteousness was being manifested in their lives by how they lived. They lived blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. We might even use theological terms to show what they were doing, right? They were walking in sanctification because of justification. There's no true walking in righteousness without first being made righteous by God through faith in Him. There are none, let's say it this way, there are none who are justified who are not also sanctified. We could flip that around. And there are none who are sanctified who are not first justified. And so we know that when Luke here declares that they were righteous in the sight of God, we also know that they had believed God unto salvation, and therefore, because they believed God and they were righteous, declared righteous by God, then we know that they desired to obey, and that's why they were keeping all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And so this is very instructive for us as we just begin here that we as true believers in Jesus Christ, that we as Christians strive to live in such ways, should we not? To strive to live righteously in the sight of God. Not in order to somehow gain righteousness, that can never happen, but simply because we are already made righteous in Jesus Christ. We are already righteous in position before God because we have believed God and He has declared us righteous. We believed what God said concerning His Son. In fact, this is exactly what the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. He says, little children, make, no, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, because the devil has sinned from the beginning. And so that is observation number one. These were saved individuals. Zacharias and Elizabeth were saved people. And sometimes we can get into our minds that, okay, I'm saved, I'm, I'm, I'm in the kingdom of God, and, and life's going to be great now. Life is just going to flow. Like there, there's going to be no bumps in the road, right? Sometimes we, we see people trying to say that, particularly in the falseness of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Like come to Jesus and everything will be good. Your wallet will be full. Life will be great. You won't have any debt. All those kind of nonsensical ideas. <coughs> And yet that's not what we see happening here. Observation number two, God uses common people and humanly impossible circumstances to accomplish great things. God uses common people and humanly impossible circumstances to accomplish great things. Notice verse 7. Verse 7 says, And they had no children. 
Right? Here, here's the juxtaposition. They're righteous in the sight of God. They're walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. I'm not quite sure as those who live today in our modern day and age that we can sense the full heaviness of those words. There was nothing more burdensome for a Jewish woman to bear than to not be able to bear a child. In fact, you can even hear it in her voice when she says in verse 25, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when He looked upon, looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. <clears throat> this is what the Old Testament says, Psalm 127, Children are an heritage from God. They are a blessing from the Lord. And beside that, beside that understanding rolling around in their minds, they are now old. The years of possible reproduction has long passed. And so here is this aged couple, faithful to God. They have no children. It was not simply that Elizabeth was unable, but now they are both aged. Even if Elizabeth wasn't barren, the physical realities were all but gone. They have no children, they are old, and they had borne the human stigma for their entire married life. People were probably saying, what's what's going on with Zacharias and Elizabeth? I mean, what's happening with them? They, they must have some problem. They have, must have some issue in their lives. There must be something wrong with them. It was horrific. The continual burden for both to bear, let alone for Elizabeth as a woman in first century Palestine. But Luke wants us to know that God's grace doesn't exempt us, number one, from trouble, God's grace doesn't exempt us from trouble. It doesn't exempt us from any of those kinds of things in this life. And yet, number two, it is God that is a God of the impossible. Zacharias is a priest. His wife is from a priestly family. They were both faithful to God. They walked obediently before God. They lived righteously. In spite of that fact... In spite of the fact that in the eyes of the people they were seen as unrighteous, they they were not righteous in the eyes of the people, even though they were righteous in the sight of God. Luke wants us to know that her inability to have a child had nothing to do with them. It had everything to do with something God had planned long ago. God had something planned for them that was so much more beyond anything they could ever ask or think. I find it ironically humorous that the angel says to Zacharias, and you will have joy. (laughs) You will have joy and gladness. (laughs) I thought about that as I was reading that in light of when my wife told me 
She was pregnant some years ago with the child that we were not expecting. My jaw wasn't filled. My heart wasn't filled with, oh, this is wonderful. It's shock. There's shock there sometimes. You can imagine Zacharias is shocked at the news that the angel was telling him and then the fact that it happened. No wonder the angel had to tell him, and you will have joy. It's almost a command. You make sure, Zacharias, you're joyful about this and you're glad about this. To them was to be given the forerunner. To them was to be given the first prophet in 400 years. In fact, John would be the last prophet of the Old Testament. They would have just one son, and he would be the forerunner of the Savior of the world. The Old Testament spoke about it. It spoke about this time coming. It spoke of one crying in the wilderness who would prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. How would we know the Messiah, beloved, if we first did not know the forerunner? The forerunner would know the sacrificial system in and out. He would watch his father perform the duties of a priest. He would know that no physical lamb could ever fully atone for sin. He would know that year after year, in fact, day by day, sin had to be atoned for by the sacrifice of a physical lamb. And one day he would declare to all around, look, the lamb of God that takes away. The sin of the world. Zacharias and Elizabeth, they're not under divine punishment. In fact, they're just two ordinary people that are part of God's divine plan. A situation that seems so humanly hopeless. Sometimes that's exactly where God wants us. God wants us in the impossibility of the moment. So that when he speaks, when he speaks his word and we have it, when he speaks, we hear it. We hear it. Observation number three. Observation number three the means God uses to break the silence. The means God uses to break the silence. Just in a a quick nutshell, it's His Word. That's what breaks the silence. Notice verse 8. Now it came about while He was performing His priestly service before God in the appointed order of His division according to the custom of the priestly office. He was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense 
And the whole multitude is outside in prayer, outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appears to him standing at the right side of incense. And Zacharias is troubled as he saw him and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zacharias. Your petition is heard. Your wife will bear a son. And you'll give him the name John. Luke tells us that an angel of the Lord appears to Zacharias. In the Mishnah, one of the oral collections of laws that carry out the aspects of Jewish life and worship, it states that before each of the two daily offerings, lots were used to determine who would do different tasks. So of the 56 who were to serve that day, there were lots drawn And they would divvy up the essential tasks in that way. And one of those tasks was offering incense at the altar in the holy place. Not the holy of holies, but in the holy place on the altar, the incense altar. And if that was your task, it was one you could do only once in your lifetime. That meant that not every priest was able to do this in their lifetime. It was chosen by Lot. Somehow the Lot fell to Zacharias. I wonder how that happened. God is not a God of chance. And therefore, this is a very high privilege for him. And Luke tells us that the Lot falls to him. And so in the moment that he is at his highest point in his priesthood, God intervenes. Outside, it's known as the court of Israel outside the inner parts of the of the temple. And the faithful Jews that are there praying, they're praying that God would hear their prayers as the incense offering goes up. It's symbolic of the prayers being carried up to God, a sweet aroma that God would hear their prayers. They're praising, they're praying that, that the sacrifice of incense would be pleasing to God. God had been silent. They want God to hear their prayers, and the moment comes, God's plan from eternity past is now upon us, and Zacharias is about to enter the holy place. In front of him is the holy of holies, the curtain that separates the holy place from the holy of holies, the massive curtain there. To his left on the table is the table of showbread, to his right is the lamp, the golden lampstand. Directly in front of him is the golden altar, the altar of incense. And while he is there carrying out his duties very carefully, meticulously to do it just as God had designed it, there appears an angel standing to the right of the altar. Nothing like that has ever happened in his lifetime. Zacharias has heard of angels before. He's been told about angels and the miracles being done in the past through the prophets. He knows the promises of God that would bring about the Messiah to the earth, but God has been silent for so long, and now standing right beside Zacharias is this supernatural being. Listen and think, and think, Because this is very important to our understanding. 
Luke is laying out this history so that we would have certainty, right? Luke is being very purposeful to ensure that we know that the reality of Jesus Christ is not a human story. Think about that. The reality, what we know of Jesus Christ, what we've heard of Jesus Christ, what we know to be true of Jesus Christ is not something made up from men. We need to understand that because what we are hearing about is not from man, it is from God. This is God's Word. This is none other than the revelation of God of the universe as He speaks through this miraculous happening of His supernatural invention into humanity, which has no human explanation other than this is miraculous. Science cannot come up with a way that this might have happened. The intellect of man can try to fancify ways in which this may have happened. This, beloved, is a miraculous happening, the supernatural invading in to what it has created. And in fact, the details are that it involves an angel from heaven. These are words from God. The first time God has spoken in over 400 years And his message is about a miracle that is about to happen. And it will be the first of many miracles to come. You ever notice when you read the Bible, this is the Word of God, this is the Creator of the universe, the one who has created you, who is speaking, and you read it, and big things are happening. I mean, massive things are going on. Things that haven't happened in centuries, and yet they're so understated. You ever notice that? I mean, you might think that there would be this big build-up to all of this, right? This big crescendo coming. You would think that God God might have had Zacharias go outside the temple and, and bright lights shine upon Zacharias and the people around him hear all these sounds that are going on and, and we it's all strange and you don't understand and there's sounds of trumpets and this angel descends and begins to talk with Zacharias and all is visible. It's all under great fanfare. I can tell you what, if that was a book written by us, that's how it would be. Certainly how you and I would have written it, but not God. It's all just very understated. Zacharias is just going about his business, doing what he's called to do, and an angel stands beside him. Why is it so understated? Why is it so understated? We can only speculate, but I believe this, because there is no human explanation for what is happening. There is no human explanation for this. This is miraculous. And the announcement is miraculous. Listen, Zacharias, your wife is going to have a baby. Jaw drop moment. Your wife's going to have a baby, and his name is going to be John. And you will have joy, you will have gladness, and on top of that, many will rejoice at his birth, it says in verses 13 and 14. Now, 
I trust that we are sensing the weight of what is happening here. Listen, this is not just an angel. That would be enough. This is an angel sent from God himself. He says, I am Gabriel, verse 19, who stands in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. In other words, God has sent me to break the silence. The silence is over hundreds of years since hearing anything from God. And now I am here in the house. And notice, notice verse 12. I love this. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw him and fear gripped him. You think? Why? Because Zacharias didn't have joy when he saw the angel. He didn't say to himself, wow, guess what? I got to hurry and tell everybody outside. Hey guys, can you imagine what I saw? He didn't seek out some publisher so that he could write a best-selling book for everybody to read. No. No, he had only one reaction that any sinful person, that's all of us, This is the only reaction that any sinful person would have when you come face to face with something perfectly holy. You panic and tremble in uncontrollable fear. Zacharias was troubled when he saw him and Phobos, fear, gripped him. Text says he was troubled. Troubled, that's the idea of being startled by something. But then, because of that something, you are paralyzed with fear. Remember years ago when I was a kid, my parents used to be part of the youth department, and they used to take large groups of high schoolers to national parks in California, and they would sing to the people and then fan out to share the gospel with the people. I remember being with them on one trip as a youngster, and we were walking back one night from the area we were, and it was dark. It's pitch black like it is in New Hampshire when you're not on the street somewhere. Most streets don't have those lights anyway, so it's dark. The first thing that was said by my son when we first came here and moved here, man, it's dark here. It was dark in the National Park, and someone jumped out from behind a tree, unbeknownst to me as a little kid, and growled like they were a bear. I froze with fear. I thought it was real. Well, in an infinitely greater sense, that's what's happening here. Zacharias is emotionally paralyzed in the presence of this supernatural being. He is terrified. You say, really? Yeah, that's the normal reaction. That's the normal reaction. In fact, survey the Bible. That is the normal reaction. Gideon in Judges chapter 6 was terrified when he was face to face with the angel. It was the reaction of Samson's father in Judges chapter 13. In fact, he said to his wife this, We're going to die. I'm so frightened by what is happening right now, we are going to die. 
Holiness is here, and we are not holy. That was the exact same reaction of Isaiah the prophet when he saw God high and lifted up. Immediately pronouncing judgment upon himself. Beloved, we can never forget that. Anytime there is a visitor from heaven, it's a traumatic event for a sinner. And I'll just say this, if someone here says that they've had a personal encounter with the supernatural being and you just sat down for a cup of coffee and a nice conversation and were not gripped by fear, you didn't meet with something holy. You didn't meet with something holy. This side of heaven, it's always traumatic. And so too it was for Zacharias, who was righteous in the sight of God. And so the angel says, stop being afraid. Stop being afraid. Don't be afraid. I can't help myself. Stop being afraid. Why? Your prayers have been heard. Your wife will bear a son and you will call him John. We're going to get into that more next time. But the point that I want to emphasize is this. God always communicates with His Word. That's how God communicates. He doesn't communicate in any other kind of way. There isn't some still small voice inside of you that speaks to you and it's God's words. No, He only speaks through His Word. And that's what the angel brought. He brought the Word of God. A word that was in total agreement with every word that had been spoken through the prophets before because they were speaking for God. This wasn't new. This was foretold. You and I would do well to hear the message. To hear what God has said to us when God spoke at the baptism of the forerunner or, or from the forerunner. He spoke about Jesus when He said, This is My Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. We would do well to listen to God. Believe upon His Son that we might have eternal life. As we just begin, as we just launch out this morning into this, Zacharias and Elizabeth were two human people who were in a seemingly humanly hopeless situation. Loved God, walked with God, desired to see the fulfillment of what God was doing. Yet in their life, before the eyes of everybody else, it was hopeless. But that's exactly where God desired them to be. Because it's there that they hear God speak. Maybe that's us. Maybe we're in that spot. Seemingly hopeless situation for us in our own life. We're here this morning because God's saying, listen to me, listen to me, believe upon my son and you will be saved. That'll be the message throughout the gospel of Luke. God said it in verse 37 to Mary, for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. 
You too can be saved. Nothing's impossible with God. You may seem like you can't be, but you can. All you need to do is repent of your sin, believe upon Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. We'll get more next time. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your Word. Thank You for these two people, Zacharias and Elizabeth. Maybe we didn't know anything about them really before, and now we know a little little about who they were, a little about their life, a little about their circumstance. Maybe even we resonate with all of that in our own life. Circumstances of life can be difficult. The ridicule of others can be very troubling. And yet you have a plan, a plan purposed before eternity. And here we see the prophecy of the Old Testament coming and being fulfilled right here in Luke's Gospel. These two people, seemingly unknown In fact, this was all we will know of them throughout the entire gospel. Your son will carry the mantle. He will do what you have called him to do. He will proclaim who the Messiah is. And then we will watch the unfolding of your mercy and grace as Jesus Christ himself carries out ministry only to be killed by a humanity that rejects him. Lord, what unfathomable mercy and grace you've shown. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we can have certainty in it. Thank you that it's absolute fact. And it's not from men. We praise you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.